the regulator of our brain, which is the prefrontal cortex, it's working at like minimal level. And in order for a person to be calm and balanced, actually that system has to be in the forefront. And when it's not in the forefront, you have an emotional system that has hijacked everything. And so now you become just a reactor and not sort of a controlled uh, individual that, you know, thinks logically, you know what, this person's a damaged person or, or, or dangerous person or an offensive, disrespectful person. This is not a person I'm going to have in my life. That's what the frontal lobes would say. And if the frontal lobes were in charge, that's what you would do. But because they're not in charge, you're in this sort of toxic cycle of sticking around. Even saying to yourself, this is not me. Because I remember saying that a million times to myself. Like, I think I'm kind of a smart enough person to know this is not good. But what what am I doing here? Welcome to the Multi-Amory Podcast. I'm Jace. I'm Emily. And I'm Dedeker. We believe in looking to the future of relationships, not maintaining the status quo of the past. So whether you're monogamous, polyamorous, swinging casually dating, or if you just do relationships differently, we see you and we're here for you. On this episode of the Multi-Amory Podcast, we're talking about what happens to your brain in a bad relationship with our guest, Dr. Rhonda Freeman. Dr. Freeman is a clinical neuropsychologist and the founder of NeuroInstincts, a neuroscience-based domestic abuse support website where she educates survivors of narcissists and psychopaths. She has lectured to mental health professionals as well as abuse survivors to raise awareness regarding the impact of psychological abuse in intimate relationships, and her work has been featured by NBC, Newsweek, Reader's Digest, and best of all, now Multiamory. Dr. Freeman, thank you so much for joining us today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so I did open up a thread in our private Patreon supporter group uh, asking people if they had any particular questions for you. We got about 6 billion questions. People are really, really interested in the subject. They're really, really interested in knowing what's going on in their own minds. Um, I've tried to write questions that kind of covered as many topics as possible. And of course, I'm going to apologize to our listeners and Patreon supporters that of course, we're not going to be able to get to everybody's question. But where I want to start out, um, you know, Rhonda, you're pretty open in your work about being a survivor yourself of an abusive relationship. And I'm wondering, like, I mean, is that experience what initially drew you into this work? Or did you already have a neuroscience background when that happened? Like, what was your journey that brought you to where you are today? Yeah, um, I was actually already working as a neuropsychologist for several years when this happened to me. So I was, my focus was ADHD evaluations, Alzheimer's evaluations, brain trauma, et cetera. So it was solely focused on the neuro neurology practice rather that I was in. But then when this happened to me, um, I ended up with somebody who was on the pathological narcissism spectrum. I had to go through healing, obviously. And I realized the value of this field in addressing that set of symptoms. And that was when I realized, you know, I didn't just walk away and think, okay, good for me. I made it through. I thought so many others could probably benefit from knowing what's happening in their brain when they get involved with these kinds of individuals. Wow. I mean, yeah, I I can't even imagine what this process has been like for you, kind of like integrating both like your survivor experience with something that you were already interested in and passionate Mm -hmm. about. I mean, and it seems like as far as I can tell, 
you know, of course, there's a lot of discussion within therapeutic spaces and like different mm. therapeutic healing modalities of like how to handle abuse and and recovery from abuse. But it does seem it's like you kind of found this particular niche where it seems to me like not a lot of people are necessarily looking at. Is that true? Right. Yeah, it's true. You know, the interesting thing is that I went the traditional psychology route when I got out of my relationship. I spent a while with a psychologist because I was, I wasn't, you know, my usual self. I was like a decompensated version of myself. So I went right away to Mm. see a psychologist and she did the traditional therapy. And believe me, I'm not knocking that at all, at all. However, in working with me, I really feel that she re-traumatized me because she had a very get it out type of approach. Let's talk about it. Let's process what happened. And, you know, it kind of surprises me that I put my own background to the back burner because I know how the brain works and the brain doesn't work. It doesn't have a get it out uh, capacity it actually works in an activation deactivation uh, from a, that framework. And so the more you talk about something, you're just simply activating those neural pathways of pain and getting the brain, having that as the default versus the healthier default of being regulated, you know, and, um, and, and, just calmer and, and less traumatized. And so for a long time, for months, I went through that with her and I got worse and got worse and got worse. Wow. And yeah, I had to end up just leaving treatment because of that. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I have some questions about that too. Did you ever, did you end up finding a modality for like healing that worked for you? Yeah, mine. <laughs> <laughs> Great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, it was, um, but it, 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 and I don't say that in any kind of ag- arrogant way at all, it was because I was, I was suffering so badly. Um, I really believe at the time I had large, like very, very symptomatic with PTSD, you know, I was frightened of him and all those things. And so I was trying to get back to my regular self and it just wasn't happening. You know, I thought, okay, with time, this will go away. Back when this was happening, we didn't really look at narcissistic abuse. We didn't even have that term, by the way. It wasn't even out. Um, it was, and no one looked at it as a form of trauma. When in fact, it is. It's absolutely a form of trauma. And so after I stopped with her, I kind of went on my own for a little while. And I thought, okay, this is just my life. I'm just going to make it day by day by day and just suffer and just miss my old self, you know, because I used to be just giggly and happy and bubbly and, and just, I miss my old self. She was gone. But I was willing to accept that. And then I realized, you know what, Rhonda, you're a neuropsychologist. What are you doing? Like you actually help people every single day, training their brain. And but, you know, my training of the brain with my patients were the brain trauma patients who had actual physical damage to their brain, you know, who'd had a severe concussion. They had speech problems and all this, you know, then I realized, wait a minute, the emotional system. Why can't I train that, too? And that was when I started using um, sort of a framework that I came up with and I started getting back to me and, mm. and it worked. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. I'm really interested to go a little bit more into what that framework is, but can you also tell us what yeah. like narcissistic personality disorder exactly is and like the difference yeah. between that and psychopathy and other things just for mm. our listeners and for myself yeah. also? Absolutely. Um, so in narcissistic personality disorder, we consider it in psychology as called like a, a cluster B. And it's a set of, of disorders where they have significant trouble with what we in neuroscience, not necessarily the psychologists, but the neuroscience people call problems with their social neural networks. And you'll recognize when someone has that is because they can't say, I'm sorry, because they don't have a, rem- a remorse system. They don't have an empathy system that, well, they have it, but it doesn't work properly. They don't have compassion. They can do superficial emotions like 
have good manners. Please give me that. Mm. Or or they can host a good party or they can be the life of the party at a party. <laughs> um, they can hold court and, you know, people just look at them and wow, they're so social. You know, they can really do that superficial social. But when it counts, like when you're with your partner, you have to comfort someone and be soft and be gentle and be compassionate. Um excuse me, and really care about people, they can't pull that off at all. Mm. And that's because the social neural networks, which is the limbic system communicating with the prefrontal cortex, that connection is not working properly. So, wow. Mm. Yeah. So that's what they have. Not almost, well, all narcissists have that, but we have different degrees of narcissistic personality disorder and we have different blends of it. Like for example, the histrionic narcissist. That person is, you'll never think they're a narcissist because they seem so nice. So nice. They are so helpful to you. Anything you need. Hey, I got you. I'm, I'm, they're, they're the guy who brings the donuts to the office. Everybody loves him. People love his jokes. But talk to his wife or his family or his kids. And they're petrified of him at home. They can't make a mistake. They are afraid of his rageful temper. And if anyone in, in that home went out and said, you know, Jack is incredibly aggressive at home. No one would believe you. Nobody. Because Jack has a stellar mask where he's so, mm. you know, nice. He's a nice guy, you know? Mm. Um, and then you have like the malignant narcissist. That's the one who can't pull off the nice guy mask to save his life. And he, he and he won't try. Um, they're the intimidators. They are the social violators. They will be rude to you and feel proud of it because power is what they're really all about. And so we go along the spectrum, the histrionic narcissist and narcissist, and then you have the borderline personality narcissist. That's the one who they always seem negative. They're always agitated. They even have some anxiety about them. There's nothing you can do to really make them happy because in interactions, they want you to feel this big, really small is what I'm doing. The fingers are small. <laughs> they want you to feel really small and they're aggressive and they're up, they're down, they're up, they're down. But we go further down that pathological narcissism spectrum and you'll run into the psychopath. Psychopath, um, they're not as needy, believe it or not, as a narcissist. A narcissist needs to be what we call fed with supply. They need that audience. Even mm. if they're not famous, even if they're just a regular Joe Schmo person at your job, they need to hold court in some way. They want people to feel like I couldn't do without you because you're so amazing. But the psychopath has no need for your adulation. They just want your submission and they could care less if you like them or not. They don't need to feed off of you. They just want to dominate. You're in their way. Be careful because they're going to run you over. Whereas a narcissist is so dependent on the environment. Mm. So it, and it's, it's a little bit hard to detect if you don't work with a lot of them. Um, my body, because I have worked so many years with them and because I think I've been traumatized by one, I feel them when I have a narcissistic versus a psychopathic pa patient. Wow. Like I get tense. I get, like I get a fear reaction. I go, why, why am I having trouble breathing? I think to myself and I realize, okay, this person probably has some psychopathic traits. And then my vows are long. I work with a patient from four to six hours a piece. Wow. So, oh. yeah, because <laughs> yeah. you got to do, you know, I'm, I'm doing psychological evaluations. And so they take a long time. And so it's hard when I have a psychopathic patient for me because my body is screaming, run. It's saying you're in danger, you know, but I, I have to tell my brain, this is an evaluation. I'm safe. It's OK. You know, I know you're picking up on his pathology or her pathology, but we just we have a job to do. Yeah. So it's so interesting. You know, you point out the fact that these things are on a spectrum and they also can be mixed together in particularly unique ways, you know? And so I think that definitely what 
I see a lot in working with my own clients in the kind of questions that people bring forth in our listener groups. People are always wondering, it's like, how can I really tell the difference between someone who's on the spectrum or maybe moving in kind of a direct, or a dangerous end of that spectrum versus someone who's just kind of toxic and unhealthy for me? Yeah. yeah. It's a little, it's, a, it's difficult when you don't, you know, have sort of a, um, like a gauge of what they are like. But that was one of the things I mentioned earlier is one of the things you could look at is, are there deep emotions? Are the deep emotions there? Am I getting nice or am I getting kind? There's a difference. Um, am I getting someone who, if they hurt me, do, do they care about that hurt? That hurt? Um, are they able to genuinely apologize or with contrition? Because they can say, I'm sorry, if it's, if they feel that, whoa, I'm going to lose something if I don't say those words. So I'll say those words to her. But is it followed by contrition or is it followed by, hey, I already said I'm sorry, like get over it. You know, that you'll see a lot with the narcissist. They don't like it when you bring up that you hurt me. Once they acknowledge, okay, I hurt you, they think it's done. That's it. But in reality, you know, it's human uh, interactions are complex. You have to show contrition. You have to make it up and you have to listen to the hurt person's pain because you did that. Um, so they don't want to be accountable. So those are a few things you can look out for. Normal human beings don't want to hurt someone and walk away from that. That's very abnormal to do. So, so many of us out there, I guess, unless maybe you meet the love of your life in high school or something, we are often in bad relationships and we stick with them for a long time. So what really goes on in our brains during that time? And, and are there specific reasons like body chemistry or brain chemistry as to why we end up staying in some of those relationships for longer than we should? Yeah, yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I was one of those people, you know, who's who stayed. Uh, logically, not only did I know he was a bad partner, logically, I knew he was a psychopath. You know, I thought, wow, the criteria being met, let me just walk away. And I couldn't do it. You know, um, and I went back and analyzed the reasons why later on, you know, because I was in a relationship where I we had children together. There was no financial dependence. There were no extraneous reasons that some people have to stay in those situations. I kind of understand if you have nowhere to go and homeless, it's got to get pretty bad for you to walk away and live on the street or live in a shelter. And so I get that. But I didn't have those circumstances. I was fine in those, you know, in that regard. I stayed because I was connected to him through neurochemistry. Um, and so, so, I, so I'm sorry, um, people who are psychopathic and narcissistic don't start off harming you. And in fact, they have what's called a normal reward system. Our reward system is the system of our brain that allows us to get attracted to people. It's the lust system. It's the system that you need in order to sort of procreate and continue the, the species. And it's a fantastic system. You want that system up and working normally. It's motivating. It's the craving system. They have that system. And in fact, research has found that their system works even more powerfully than ours. So hence the reason that you'll find that they are often cheaters more often than the regular people because they one, they don't have morals. And then two, they have a strong reward system. Talk about a bad combination to have, by the way. The mm -hmm. worst, because you don't have any moral constraints that say, hey, I shouldn't cheat on my wife. I shouldn't cheat on my pregnant wife. I shouldn't cheat on my boyfriend. I shouldn't cheat on my husband. Um, and on top of it, your reward system is craving whatever's new, whatever seems exciting. 
And so when they are first getting with you, they really are attracted to you because they tend not to kind of fake that. But that system kind of shuts down for them just because for all of us, we lose a track, like that level of butterflies in the, you know, the stomach, that gasping reaction when we see our, our guy or our girl after we've been with them for a little while. But for the rest of us, we shift into this beautiful, comfortable, loving, cozy. Honestly, I think it's better than the second stage, that cozy level of love that, you know, you can just cuddle up with them and watch TV. And it just feels like the world is just an amazing place. Like this person doesn't have to do a thing for me. Just be right there. And I'm so happy. They can't shift to that stage. So when they're done with their reward system, high of you, the dopamine's all, you know, excited and going, they don't shift into, okay, and I really deeply love this woman or this man. It's over for them. Hmm. And, and so you during that time period have bonded with them because you're a normal human being. You bond with them. And so when they start acting badly, because that's when you start to see their pathology by the way, unfortunately, is when the reward system's kind of over you and it's sh- it shut off. By the way, this is my own theory. There's no scientific research out there that you'll find on this. This is just my, my theory in working with so many narcissists and psychopaths. Um, and so when they are done with you, you are not done with them because guess mm. what? You're in love with this guy or this girl. And so you are bonded to them, but then they start behaving so badly, so horribly, but then they're good and then they're bad, then they're good, then they're bad. That is actually bothering with your bonding system. So now you have your bonding system uh, activated in such a way that's confusing. And we have chemistry called oxytocin. And oxytocin works in two different directions, believe it or not. It's that great sort of comfy, cozy chemistry, but it's a part of our alerting system. And a researcher, Dr. Shelley, I'm forgetting her last name, she came up with this theory. And I think that, you know, if you guys can read that theory, it's fantastic. And it's a theory where she says oxytocin is a part of an alerting system. And what it tells you is that something's really wrong in this relationship. So your brain is gush with oxytocin. And it's not the good type. It's the type that says, this isn't good. We're not happy. We got to go. So some survivors are able to leave when they feel that gush of sort of nasty chemistry. But guess what? The nice bonding chemistry of oxytocin pops back in place. And it well. Hmm was it really that bad? You know, maybe I'll talk to him. We'll have a discussion. We'll, you know, work it out. He did say, I'm sorry. And then boom, you're back again. There's just so much chemistry that um, these people can ignite in you. And I want to say to your listeners, don't feel responsible for that chemistry because you have no control over it. So it happens involuntarily, but it also reflects that the brain always is reacting to our environment. Always, 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 always. And so when one person walks in a room, our brain chemistry can be fantastic. Uh, so happy that that Jace walked into the room. So happy, so happy. <laughs> and then when Veronica walks in the room, I feel her coldness. I feel her her competition, her hate, her her fakeness. I, I don't feel good around her. So around her, I react a little bit differently because of how she makes me feel. And it's all automatic. So this is why, you know, as a psychologist, I tell people, try to get the toxic people out of your life because even though you say, you know, no, people don't affect me, you have no choice. They do affect you. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like this is such a, a foundational part of a lot of our assumptions around, you know, really blaming victims and survivors of like, well, why did they stay? Why did they stay? Why did they yeah. stay? Why didn't they leave? It was obviously so mm-hmm. bad when there's so many other systems going on below the surface, keeping us in a situation. Yeah, very true. Very true. And on top of that, 
the regulator of our brain, which is the prefrontal cortex, it's working at like minimal level. And in order for a person to be calm and balanced, actually that system has to be in the forefront. And when it's not in the forefront, you have an emotional system that has hijacked everything. And so now you become just a reactor and not sort of a controlled uh, individual that, you know, thinks logically, you know what, this person's a damaged person or or dangerous person or an offensive, disrespectful person. This is not a person I'm going to have in my life. That's what the frontal lobes would say. And if the frontal lobes were in charge, that's what you would do. But because they're not in charge, you're in this sort of toxic cycle of sticking around even saying to yourself, this is not me, because I remember saying that a million times to myself. Like, I think I'm kind of a smart enough person to know this is not good. But what what am I doing here? That the regulator of our brain, which is the prefrontal cortex, it's working at like minimal level. And in order for a person to be calm and balanced, actually that system has to be in the forefront. And when it's not in the forefront, you have an emotional system that has hijacked everything. And so now you become just a reactor. And not sort of a controlled uh, individual that, you know, thinks logically, you know what, this person's a damaged person or, or, or dangerous person or an offensive, disrespectful person. This is not a person I'm going to have in my life. That's what the frontal lobes would say. And if the frontal lobes were in charge, that's what you would do. But because you're not in charge, you're in this sort of toxic cycle of sticking around. Even saying to yourself, this is not me, because I remember saying that a million times to myself, like, I think I'm kind of a smart enough person to know this is not good, but what, what am I doing here? Mm. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So, okay. All right. There's a lot of information to take in and we love neuroscience stuff and, and brain chemistry and, and all of that stuff. But I, I did want to take a moment before we get into some more specific listener questions to just cover a few more things of like, what are some key sort of assumptions that you see out there about psychopathic abuse or sociopathic abuse, some kind of common mm-hmm. assumptions or maybe things you see thrown around in advice that you would want to kind of dispel those myths or, or correct um, some things. Like what are some common ones you see? It's the codependency narcissist dance that I hear. Like I literally have heard some people say, If you were not codependent, you wouldn't have been in this relationship. In fact, my therapist told me that. And that was my last session with her. Yeah, that was actually what the last session was. She made me feel so terrible. But she actually told me that. She said, you know, I think you're codependent. I need to work on those patterns. And I did question her. I said, well, um, okay. One, you didn't give me any psychological testing. None of the things that I do as a neuropsychologist to find out if I'm right about a theory. But... Um, why did this never happen before? I was a woman in my 30s. So why would I just all of a sudden develop this pattern? And so I want to dispel that myth because remember earlier I talked about that our brain has a reaction to everybody. And so almost everyone who gets around a psychopath or a narcissist, even very securely attached people, they have that, that feeling of feeling less than around them. They have this way of making anybody feel inferior because of how their actions are, their behavior. So your brain has a strange reaction to them. And they are chronic rejectors, meaning that um, they don't quite accept you. They want you to feel badly about whatever it is that you're saying to them. Or they even reject you as far as like ghosting you or not responding to you or minimizing you. All those are forms of rejection. And the really bad thing when it comes to the brain and rejection is that it ramps up our bonding of all things, believe it or not. And it makes us pay more attention to the rejector. My theory on that is because 
I think it's more of a survival thing. I mean, think about it. Back, you know, a long time ago when we were like around tigers and bears and out in the wild, imagine if our social group rejected us, you know, and we were out there, we'd be out there by ourselves, going to die. Yeah. You know, we're going to die because we can't make it on our own. And so, yeah, it makes you pay attention to who rejects you. What's the reason? Let's get it resolved so that you're not, you know, unsafe anymore. But that is not necessary anymore, you know, for us to feel that way. But the older regions of our brain have not changed. They probably will not change. But that's why the frontal lobes are so important because the frontal lobes puts a cap on that and go, oh, no, don't worry about it. This is a reason we reject it. That person's a horrible person. (laughs) So don't worry (laughs) about it. Um, But when you have a system where the emotional system is more um, empowered and has hijacked everything, you don't get the benefit of the frontal lobes calming things down again. So if I were to look at anything and say that I want a myth dismissed because I have so many survivors uh, sending me questions and how do I take care of my codependency? And I think that we don't even use that word in neuropsychology, by the way, we don't. But Hmm. I think what they may be describing is an insecure attachment style that they may have. They may have chronically had it because of maybe their foundation isn't strong. Maybe they were mistreated as a child. Maybe they have complex PTSD. I think that's what they're seeing. And so they're carrying those patterns into their relationships and thinking that they somehow have caused this dance or sought out the narcissist or something like that. That's what I would love to dis- dis- dismiss. Yeah. Dismiss, yeah. It, that's that's so interesting. I never really made that connection before that because I do feel that mm, probably what around 2016, 2017, 2018 was when I feel I saw this huge spike in, you know, groups, groups for codependence recovering from narcissistic abuse or, mm. you know, or all these books that came out that was about, like you said, that narcissistic codependent dance that happens and it felt like so many people were there and I never really thought about that before about um that it's like by kind of attaching this label of codependent to yourself on the one hand I can see how some people could find some ownership in that and maybe some control in that of like okay there's a label I can diagnose Mm -hmm. it I can work on it but then also on the other hand it just kind of perpetuates this kind of sense of like you as the survivor brought this on yourself in some way and and we need to focus on you fixing your problems instead of talking about bigger social problems about how we deal with bigger patterns of like abusive or toxic behavior. But so I feel like I'm getting the sense of you from you. Um, like, do you feel that that there's maybe like an over self-diagnosis of of codependence matched with, you know, survivors of narcissistic abuse? I do. Yeah, I, I do. No, I and it, but I don't want to completely discount that because I think that perhaps because they're not psychologists and because they don't have a background in neuroscience, they are calling something like an at- a certain attachment style, something that came through with various, um, well, sort of came to fruition because of various experiences, very negative experiences, possibly past trauma. And they're calling that codependency and then sort of saying that you're enabling the the narcissistic partner by staying. But in fact, when you stay, it's because you're, you're bonded to them in a certain way and they're sort of creating certain dynamics in, in, in you. And if you got around somebody who was loving and secure, these people that they're calling codependents would actually probably show a bit of an in, in insecure attachment style, but they would probably improve significantly in a nurturing, accepting, mature with a you know partner of that of that type. 
nobody does well, by the way, with a pathological narcissist. It's, it's, I, it's so difficult to make it work with them. You can stay with them, but the quality of the relationship is not going to be a good relationship. So to go along with the sort of over-diagnosing of other people or ourselves as codependents as it relates to narcissists, something else that that I feel like I notice with a lot of the way people are talking now about their exes or or potentially even their current partners, although I hear this more often when people talk about their exes, is it's based on that, it seems like almost everyone out there is a narcissist because of how often that's thrown out as an accusation against someone's ex. And I'm like, is calling your partner or your ex-partner a narcissist just the new, like, yeah, my ex was crazy? Mm-hmm. I think it is. Yeah. <laughs> I really do. So that's I, interesting I think it you, is overused. Yeah, because yeah, you work in this, but so it's like you realize how important it is, but also people are throwing it around too often. Mm-hmm. What What do you think about that? What's yeah, going on they, there? They, it, that's so interesting you asked that question because a, a few years ago, I think it was like 2017, I wrote an article um, in Psychology Today and it starts off with just that statement oh, really? that we are, yeah, we're over you, you know, like you're overusing the word. And so the whole article was explaining, but this is truly what a narcissist is, you know, what that personality disorder is like. And so just because you don't like somebody or somebody is a bit immature, but that immature person can have contrition and some compassion. They can feel bad, but they're just a jerk or something like that to you. That's not a narcissist. And so, you know, this is why I mean, as a psychologist, we, we don't really want people out there diagnosing. And, and so when people come to my material, you know, they go, they always ask me, is he a narcissist? And they give me all the description. One, I can't say yes or no. And two, it's just how they, how they treated you. Focus on that. Don't slap that label on there. Just how did he make you feel? Did you feel scared? Did you feel threatened? Did you feel little? Did you feel disrespected? And it was continuous and this person didn't care about you. That's what you need to recover from. Like, don't worry about that label. Yeah, I, I was just saying about that. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. It's your job to worry about the label. <laughs> sure. Yeah, like, but that. that's, that's very much echoing our conversation with Christy Croft that we had a couple weeks ago ah. where it's like we can get so granular about like, is it abuse? Is it not abuse? Is it narcissism? Is it not narcissism? When it's really, it's just like, you don't have to attach a label to feel justified to leave a relationship if you're miserable. And I do think that these days it is kind of really easy that, I mean, as human beings, we all act in selfish ways. And especially in relationship, we can all act in selfish Mm -hmm. ways. And, you know, I do think it's like someone can do something really selfish that does hurt you. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're a narcissist, no. but it is really easy to go there when you're hurting and in pain mm-hmm. and recovering from a relationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So we're going to take a quick break to talk about our sponsors for this week's episode, the ways that you can support our show so that we can keep having this content come to you for free. Stick around. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. For a long time now, we've been fans of adamandeve.com for getting sex toys or lingerie or accessories, things like that. It's just a fantastic resource with a huge selection. 
And now, not only do we have a fantastic offer, but we also have a promo code that will work on adammail.com and evestoys.com, which are their sites specifically for LGBTQ audiences. And our code is fantastic. It's 50% off of almost any item in the store and free discreet shipping when you use our code MULTI. Yes, we love adamandeve.com and have for years. They are our oldest and longest sponsor, and they just keep on giving great gifts to us and to our listeners. You can bring more pleasure and satisfaction into your bedroom by going to adamandeve.com, adammail.com, or evestoys.com and select any one item. It can be, you know, an adventurous new toy or anything you desire, something fun, something sexy, whatever sounds good. So just enter offer code MULTI at checkout and you'll get 50% off almost any item plus free shipping. That's MULTI, M-U-L-T-I at adamandeve.com, adammail.com or evestoys.com. This is an exclusive offer that is specific to this podcast and it's better than any offer that is currently available on their site. So again, use code MULTI to get you not just the 50% discount, but also the 100% free shipping code M-U-L-T-I. And we're back. All right. So this next question comes from some of our listener questions and essentially boils down to why am I still feeling attachment and longing for someone who treated me poorly after the fact? So not just why did I stay in it while I was there, but why do I still feel that now? And then I guess related to that, what what can people do to recover from that? Yeah, that was my situation. So I, I know that question really well. I lived it. Um, when it was over, you know, you would think that it'd be easy to walk away once it's over from somebody who was disrespectful and, and horrible to you, but it's not. And it's not for many reasons. Um, one, we talked about the trauma bond already. Trauma bond doesn't end just because a relationship has ended. Matter of fact, that bond can go on for a year or more. For some people, it really depends on, you know, their psychological foundation, neurological foundation. Um, some people have PTSD, you know, these are traumatic experiences that you are in your most vulnerable state. This is your partner. So some people are left with symptoms of PTSD. PTSD is not something that goes away. It must be treated in some way. Hmm. You can have PTSD to the day you die if you do not treat it. And the symptoms can be pretty, pretty significant, which is intrusive thoughts, nightmares, um, bad dreams, um, triggered by various, um, environmental stimuli. So that is some of the reason that people feel that continued pain. We have different systems in our brain. And for the survivor, this is what I found for myself. And then after having a chance to work with so many survivors, they had a very similar brain reaction. I had like five systems of my brain having a reaction after the relationship, even a year after the relationship. And they were my stress systems. We have a few of those. It's my bonding system, it's my reward system, um, my pain system of the brain, and my thinking system. Thinking because I was having a hard time feeling motivated, having a hard time organizing things. Um, I just wasn't on my game. You know, I wasn't as sharp. I was, it took a lot of effort for me to do what I used to be able to do. So my thinking was not the same, which would make sense because my frontal lobes were still not put into that, you know, that proper gear. It was still taking the back seat. My stress systems were, were, they were activated so much. And I actually started having joint pain. I had to go to a rheumatologist. The stress was so bad. Yeah, that's how bad it was. Um, And I started having like palpitations. And the doctor was like, okay, for your pain, I'll give you this. But for your palpitations, there's really, your heart is fine. 
Um, so my stress system was really activated. My reward system, because I couldn't get this guy out of my head. It was like rumination on top of rumination, just constant. I was always thinking about him and I had no desire for him in any way, like no attraction, nothing. Yet I would crave him in some way. Like I was when, you know, I look at my email, my inbox, whatever, and see if there was an an email from him or, you know, I had to put a lot of effort not to look at his social media. It was like, what is going on? Like those systems were in control of me. Um, Pain system, of course, because I was, I was, I was feeling hurt. I was feeling betrayed. You know, my particular situation, he ended up cheating and having children with this person, um, Mm -hmm. which was the most like the most horrific betrayal because I had no idea that was happening behind my back. So um, all those systems are activated even when the relationship is over and they can stay activated unless you get things back in balance. And so that's what needs to be done to get things back in balance. But for those who have the PTSD, you need a specialist for that, for sure, because that's not a self-care healing kind of thing. You need psychiatrist, psychology, you know, a, a trauma-informed therapist. That's so interesting. I, just to rewind the tape a little bit that you bring up, you know, having this experience of, I don't feel attraction to this person anymore. I don't feel a romantic pull to this person anymore. I don't feel an emotional pull to this person anymore. And yet my brain is just full of this person. We had a couple of listener questions about that too. Um you know, of being like, no, like, I don't feel like I'm still attached. They're just like in my brain. And Mm -hmm. I know I've definitely experienced that as well. And Uh, it feels like you're going off your rocker to a certain mm -hmm. extent. Like I remember, you know, recovering from a particularly devastating relationship where it was like six months to a year later, still waking up thinking about this person, even though Mm -hmm. it was so far beyond still Mm -hmm. feeling a bond or still wanting to get back together or things like that. And it's just... It's it's wild the way that our brains work, and it's also, I think, really easy to get frustrated with your own brain. I know oh, I yeah. have been. I don't know no, about I all did y'all. Too. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's so true. Um, it interestingly, I actually heard of here. I go. I felt like such a arrogant person. I never wrote an article about that, but. <laughs> But I, I wrote an article and it says, um, I forget what outlet I wrote it from, Psych Today or Huffington Post. But um, it was about the brain works against abuse victims. And I talk about all the systems that stay activated, that keep you focused on this person that you don't want. And I speak on that frustration and how distressing it is because you don't have control of your own mind, you know, and it's, it's doing its own thing. Um, and, and there are a few things you can do to kind of help that. And I talk about those few things you can do in an article. One of the really good things you can do is just social connections, like getting the release of that really good oxytocin cools down um, the bonding system and the stress system and the reward system so much, so much. In fact, that there's a section of research trying to figure out how to use that with addiction, people who are like addicted to um, illicit drug, mm. because this, it activates the same system, by the way, our, our romantic relationship breakups activate the same system of the you know drug addiction um, section of the brain. And so they are trying to figure out how to properly administer oxytocin to help people detach from that connection, because oh, it wow. is truly at that point, a biochemical thing. It's not you wanting this person. And unfortunately, our well-intentioned friends may tell you, because mine did, you know, girl, like, stop, like, you know, mm. get over it. It's done. It's over. And I'm like, I'm not even trying. Like, 
<laughs> you know, I, I just can't. I don't understand. Mm. Um, but yeah, that system kind of takes off. So I know exactly what you're saying. Yeah, I definitely. think that's kind of a good segue into talking about recovery, which you've started to talk about a bit, but I did want to ask about um, what ultimately helped you after, you know, going to traditional talk therapy didn't, but you created yeah. this thing called neuro instincts. And can you talk a little bit about that? And then mm-hmm. also, um, in terms of healing, like, how do you not bring those feelings into future relationships, which maybe that's impossible? Maybe you do to some mm-hmm. degree, but yeah, our listeners were interested in that. Yeah. Well, Nerve Instincts is my website that I just kind of like a hub where you can just find a bunch of articles and videos about um, narcissistic abuse survivors and the sort of criteria for various um, violators, narcissists or not narcissists. But the actual sort of program I developed for myself is is kind of um, like a course that I have. But I'll tell you guys the content of the course. And in that course, I really, really focus on the prefrontal cortex because that's what ultimately helped me. Remember, I told you that I had to leave that therapist because week after week I was well, and I was dreading going, you know, because mm-hmm. she was causing so much pain. But she kept telling me it was good for me, you know, to get it out. And and so but eventually I, I decided, you know, wait, Rhonda, what are you going to do if you had Rhonda as a patient? What would you do? And by the way, third person <laughs> referencing really helped me. It's called self distancing, mm. and self distancing mm. was, um, I think, it's a psychological concept that was that was sort of come up with back in the eighties, maybe even before the eighties. But research from a neuroscience standpoint has looked at self distancing, and it actually activates your prefrontal cortex. Self distancing is when you actually speak of yourself or write, and you do your journaling in third person. Because when you do that, you look at yourself as somebody else, but you're writing about what's happening, what you feel, but you're doing it from third person, which actually activates the prefrontal cortex, which puts you into problem solving mode because you're activating that section that handles solving problems. So I did that. So I said, okay, Rhonda, what would you do if she were your patient? And I would say, oh, she she has to activate those prefrontal cortex. Clearly, it's not working well for her right now. So what would I do with that patient? And so I I found a bunch of um, executive function games. So there's like brain games, um, but I made sure they met certain criteria. So for people in my course, I have like a whole list of things that they can look for in games. And by the way, it's super fun. (laughs) It's because you don't focus on your partner. There's no getting it out. You're actually activating a region of the brain that needs to be activated to help you back. So I prescribed an hour of that for myself um, a day. On weekends, I would sometimes do it for two hours a day, (laughs) three. Yeah, I was suffering. So I was like, I was Mm. in it. Um, And and I did some journaling, but I didn't do journaling just as a kind of get it out approach. You know, I did journaling, but I did a lot of my journaling, some of it in first person, but a lot of it after I wrote first person, then I did third person, Mm. you know, because then I could then look back at what I wrote and I could kind of evaluate it and see, you know, what what it is exactly was I trying to say and how could I help that person, me with that situation. But what third person writing also does is it activates neural pathways of self-compassion because for some people who have sort of the insecure attachment style, and as you know, that's tied to often having a childhood of abuse or mistreatment or past trauma. So for them being self-compassionate doesn't feel very familiar. It feels a little bit foreign for them. They can have tons of empathy for other people, but when that empathy gets has to get turned towards self, which is like self-compassion, it feels 
weird, you know? And so writing in third person actually lets you look at your own story and feel like, wow, you know, look at what she went through and look at where Mm -hmm. she is. You know, you actually start looking at you and having some gentleness and stop the criticism. And why did I, you know, because instead, you know, of writing, why, why did I get with this guy? Why did I do this? That's, that'll never help you. It just activates the neural pathways of pain. But so you want to do the opposite. So my whole course is all about um, very healthy um, activation of neural pathways, the ones that are going to empower you, the ones that are, that are more positive. That should be our default mode, by the way. It's not some hokey, you know, <laughs> kumbaya, like, no, it's real, you know. Mm-hmm. But you want to activate those neural pathways of the prefrontal cortex because right now, when for those of you who are going through the aftermath, your emotional system is probably in the driver's seat and you want to switch it to where it's supposed to be. And so, yeah. Yeah, I, I'm so glad to know that. Well, so I had a very similar experience hopping straight into talk therapy right after leaving an abusive relationship. Um, And again, to reiterate, like you said, not knocking talk therapy. I mean, I'm in talk therapy now at a much better Mm -hmm. place where it's much more helpful. But I kind of did the same thing where where it was this like, I'm just going to hop straight in. And very similar of like, this is just re-traumatizing me. Like, I don't want to relive this. I don't want to talk about this. Um, You know, I don't want to keep revisiting these details over and over and over. And you know, talking about this kind of self-distancing work along with, you know, all the other work that you do and kind of helping somebody through this, uh, it strikes me as it must also be really helpful to kind of be able to have like this self-distanced narrative as well to see more of this arc and to see you more as like the hero of your own story kind Mm -hmm. of going through this arc and coming out the other side, which is so much harder when I think we're writing just about ourselves from our own first-person perspective. That's exactly true. Yes. Mm. Yes. Yeah. Mindfulness also helped me quite a bit um, because in the beginning I wasn't, you know, as I told you, I wasn't doing so well. And, but I, I wanted to get comfortable with myself being, you know, positive and, and just guiding myself. So I would record um, different mindfulness exercises. So I actually would put it on a recorder. And then like when I would, before I go to bed at night, I would just kind of listen to myself, say these recordings um, and it, it just really helped put my mind in the right spot. And of course, as you know, mindfulness activates the prefrontal cortex, believe it or not. But mindfulness is like a twofer because not only does it activate your prefrontal cortex, it calms the emotional system, which unlike the other things that I talked about, they don't do both. They just do kind of like one. But mindfulness has the dual ability to do both things. Mm, yeah some of those exercises help well as well nice so in terms of relationships that we have after the fact are there ways in which we can kind of not carry so much toxicity and pain into those next relationships and one of our um, listeners asked are there ways to hack our brains to make this process go (laughs) faster (laughs) i know you gave a lot of great examples but Yeah. yeah um yeah, brain hacks. Well, you're, if you were traumatized, oh, this is great. I'm not sure if it was Bessel van der Kolk who wrote the book. Gosh, the body always remembers or if it was Oh, the body Levin. keeps the score. Could, yeah, there we go. Yeah, that's van der Kolk. Was that Bessel? Yeah. Oh, it was, okay. Yeah, it was Bessel. Well, yeah. yeah. You know, the, he was so, so right. Because remember I told you when I do evaluations after I got traumatized, I would feel my psychopathic patients before I would even yes. do the evaluation. I thought, wow, okay, this is crazy. Um, but he's right. Your body's going to start having reactions to people. Listen to your body. Um, 
when I went on days after I was with him and, um, and I went out with narcissists, you know, again, sometimes narcissists, sometimes just normal guys, whatever. Um, and I felt them. I was like, whoa, what is this? You know, it was because I sort of really, dating was so important. The stakes were so high because of, I did not want to go back down that road again. There was nothing I was going to go. I wasn't going to go through that again. So the stakes were high for me not to go there. And so I decided I just need to listen to my, my body while these guys are talking away, whatever, what do I feel like with them? What is the theme? Do they seem like a person of compassion? Is this person just being nice? You know, so you, you have to just read yourself, trust yourself. You'll get some instincts from this bad experience because we have what's called the amygdala. And what it does is it makes associations from our past experiences so for example, if you were uh, bitten by a dog as a kid and then you grow up and you're like 50 years old, you still may have some fear regarding dogs at some degree. And that's because when you were five, your amygdala logged in there. Hey, 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 that, those things with those mouths and those teeth, they're going to be dangerous. Be careful. Mm-hmm. Let's be more alert the next time we see one of these little guys running around, you know, and it does the same thing with um, with with uh, bad relationship partners. But the problem, there's a problem. If you are a person of high empathy and high compassion, narcissistic people know how to play on that. And so because of that, you will be at more risk, unfortunately, of of getting into another one of these relationships. Because what makes you so beautiful and so special are the very things that these people unfortunately prey on. And so this is why education about this topic is so important because yeah, you will be, I, I, won't, I don't want to sugarcoat anything and say, oh yeah, you'll be fine because you had one relationship, you're going to be great. No, if you have high compassion, high empathy, it's going to be exploited because that's their pathology. It's actually one of the criteria in the DSM is that they are exploiters. Hmm. So yeah, it, it, it won't be so easy, but it's possible for sure yeah. to not get back into another one of these relationships. Yeah. And then, but then what about if you are in a new relationship that's not one of these, how to, yeah. how to turn that off a little bit and like finally let down your guard once you uh, do see that it's a good one? Mm-hmm. Well, and that's because the brain reacts, the good thing is that the brain reacts to who we're with. And so, yeah, that person may have to be a little patient with you because you're mm-hmm. in higher, you know, you're in higher alert. You know, you just went through the, the ringer with the last person. So you might be a little hard on your new partner. However, if that person is a compassionate, loving, patient person, and you ex- maybe and feel a place of trust that you are able to share that. Now, don't share that too soon, you know, because if you possibly have a narcissist, then it's like the best dish they ever got served. If you say, I've been in an abusive relationship, I've been hurt before. And they're like, wow, like I just lucked out here because here I go, you know? Mm. So, um, yeah, the, the partner that you get with may have to be patient with you on it. And oftentimes people who've been traumatized, they have trouble trusting again. So this is why work on yourself is going to be important. Finding a good therapist who can help you kind of navigate that, but use all that you learn. You can walk into a relationship being informed, you know, like I said, feeling what your body's feeling, knowing that these people have certain traits, learn those traits and and kind of see if you're with that kind of person. If you're not, as I said, I think the key for me always was looking at the deep emotions because my guy, he had the best superficial emotions. I mean, he was just the, the 
the life of the party. He could smooth anybody, have a conversation anywhere. I, I actually admire those traits in his success, all those things. I thought, my God, this guy really has himself together. Um, but I saw that he wasn't really kind to people. He bought people. He he ran things. And, and that wasn't that wasn't really that's not what I'm looking for. And so just look for their their social abilities on a deeper level. And that'll let you know if you're with somebody safe or not safe. Then of course some therapy on yourself. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So thank you so much. This has been great. Where can our listeners find more about you and your program, your articles, things like that? Oh, yeah. Thanks. So the website is called Neuro Instincts. If you go there, you will find everything, all the articles, the videos. If you want to get to the course, the link through to the course is there as well. Um, and I'm often on Instagram, not under my name, but under neural instincts. And, okay. you know, we can chat there. I have like a bunch of stuff there. You guys can learn about, um, narcissism, survivors, so forth. Yeah. Excellent. We'll definitely link you on our Instagram for sure. Oh, thank yeah, you. Definitely. <laughs> so we are going to be sticking around with Dr. Freeman to talk a little bit more in detail about all these different brain systems and how they're affected during a breakup, um, talking a little bit more in detail about bringing all those different systems into balance as well in our bonus episode that's going to be coming out later in the week after this. So we want to hear from you who are listening to this right now. Have you had experience with this? Is this something that you're struggling with right now? Did you hear anything during this episode that really made sense for you or really helped some things click into place? The best place to share your thoughts with other listeners is on this episode's discussion thread in our private Facebook group or Discord chat. You can get access to these groups and join our exclusive community by going to patreon.com slash multiamory. In addition, you can share with us publicly on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. You can email us at info at multiamory.com. Multiamory is created and produced by Jace Lindgren, Emily Matlack, and me, Dedeker Winston. Our episodes are edited by Mauricio Balvanera. Our social media wizard is Will McMillan. Our production assistants are Rachel Shenowork and Carson Collins. Our theme song is Forms I Know I Did by Josh and Anand from the Fractal Cave EP. The full transcript is available on this episode's page on multiamory.com. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.